what's gotten into y'all today, but man, that's the end of that song. Y'all were doing some good singing. That just blesses my heart when I hear you guys worshiping the Lord. I'm going to start our new series today on resolution, uh, resolutions. And, and I just got to do a quick poll. How many of you have written 2016 sometime during the last two weeks? You wrote that on a date instead of 2017. All right. How many of you are the type that you make New Year's resolutions every year? Let me see your hands. We are the non-resolutionist church I have ever seen. It did the same thing in the early service. How many of you, your only resolution is, I'm not making resolutions? Ah, yeah, that's us. You're not telling me. I'm not even telling me what to do. You're not telling me. I'm not telling myself. Well, let me show you a video. I have this video of this child who's walking along, going where she needs to go. And I want you to notice what she does because I think this is why we don't make resolutions or don't don't fulfill our resolutions. Well, y'all don't fulfill them because you don't make them. But uh, other people, why they fail in resolutions. Watch this. Now that's, uh, that kind of epitomizes what we do, right? We're going this direction. We know we're going the right direction and something catches our attention. I'm going to do this this year. Whoop, there it went, you know, squirrel, that type of deal. And, and we get distracted. Well, here's the deal with resolutions. Most of the time when you ask a resolution, you ask this question, what should I do about me? Right? It's all focused on me. Uh, that means our, our, uh, resolutions have to do with self-improvement. And ABC, or no, actually NBC is where I got this. Here's the top resolutions that uh, that NBC said people made for 2017. Get healthy, get organized, live life to the fullest, learn new hobbies, spend less, save more, travel, read more. Is there anything wrong with anything on this list? No. Uh, but where is the focus of the things on this list? It's on me. So today I'm going to talk to you about this guy named Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And Nehemiah is going to help us understand a better question that we need to ask. We're going to read the whole first chapter. And, and Nehemiah is this awesome guy. He's a leader in the Old Testament. He's a leader in the history of Israel. He is not a king. He, um, there are no miracles recorded in the entire book of Nehemiah. It's really a book about hard work and discipline. Now, in, in the year 605, okay, if you know anything about Israel, Israel history, Israel was split into two kingdoms. They had a king and then they had some issues and they split into two kingdoms. Kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom had all wicked kings. They eventually are destroyed. God said, I'll be your God and I'll protect you if you obey. If you don't, I will scatter you. So he's already scattered the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom did pretty good because every third or fourth king was a good king. And the Bible would say, uh, this king did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and God would bless them. And, and then they would start doing bad. God would send all kinds of prophets warning them, stop doing bad, stop doing bad. Eventually though, they have bad Kings. The last three were bad Kings. And eventually God says enough. He sends the Babylonians to come and to wipe them out. And when they come in, they destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. They burn the gates. They burn the temple. They take all of the good stuff out of the temple. And then they take um, many of the Israelites captive. They make them go back to Babylon and live in exile in Babylon for 70 years. And God had predicted all this. If you don't obey me, you're going to go into captivity. Um, and, and so somewhere along the line, somebody tried to go and, and rebuild Jerusalem and their enemies stopped them. 
Um, but 70 years later, all right, God said, you're going to go into captivity for 70 years. 70 years later, God pronounces judgment on the Babylonians and he sends the Persians to come and wipe them out. And their king was a man named Cyrus the Great. And Cyrus the Great had this policy of where he would send people back to their own land. He started looking around. He started saying, why are there so many Jews in this land? And he made a proclamation. He said, it is okay. If you want to go back to your homeland, the Jews may go back to their homeland. Now about 50,000 Jews decided to go back to Jerusalem and try to rebuild it, repopulate it. 50,000 out of two to three million. Now think about this. If you were gone for 70 years and and let's say we're, we're exiled to Haiti and we're going to start building houses. We're going to start getting used to it. And, And the reason they call them settlers is because they settle for wherever they are. So these people settled in the land of first Babylonian, then the Persian empire. And they said, this'll do. We've got houses. We've got family. We're just going to stay here. But God stirred up 50,000 of them to go back to Jerusalem. Now I want you to think about if we actually were exiled to Haiti for 70 years, and then we got to come back, all of us that are, that are here at new life community church, we are exiled and then we're going to come back. Now I'm not going to make it. Some of y'all might make it. Your children or your children's children might make it, but you're going to come back one day. And God says, you can go back and you can reclaim new life community church. This 42 acres that we have here, you can go back and reclaim it. Do you think anybody is going to fight you on that? The people who come in and settle here are going to go, Mm-mm, it's not yours. Oh yeah. Rachel could say, my daddy, my daddy helped build this place. I don't know who your daddy is. There's going to be issues, right? That's the issue. When all of these Israelites went back, when they went back to, to Jerusalem, people were there and it did not go well. There were all kinds of fighting. People didn't like the Jews. They didn't like the Jews back then. They don't like the Jews today. It's a big fat mess. Now, when we come to Nehemiah, Nehemiah is about a hundred years after those 50,000 went back to Jerusalem. All right. Things have gone on about a hundred years. Now I still didn't find my pointer. It's over there somewhere. Okay. So look over here in Susa. See that little Susa right above Elam. When we meet Nehemiah, he is living in the capital of the Persian kingdom, which is Susa. We'll read about that in just a second. You see that Judah uh, over here, you see Judah right above it is Jerusalem. So it's five to 600 miles if you were to go straight, but you can't go straight in that country. You have to go the long route. It's about eight to 900 miles along the road to get back to Jerusalem. So we're going to meet Nehemiah right now in chapter one of Nehemiah, verse one. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, that's a good word, good name, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in the citadel. A citadel is a fortified palace. Hannah and I got to go to a citadel in, in Haiti last year, and we climbed this mountain three miles up this mountain. We were about to die. When we got up there, there's huge walls. There's cannonballs still there from a couple hundred years ago when they built this place. There's cannons never been fired because people came. They looked up on this mountain. It was such a fortress. It was so hard to get there. They said, we're not even going to bother. So they never fired a shot. People didn't want to go there because it was so fortified. So he's in a fortified city in Susa. Hananim, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some of the other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived. He didn't say the Jewish people who had overcome. He didn't say the Jewish people who had conquered the land like they had back when it was the promised land. He said survivors. That's not really a term of hope. This, that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Now, I want you to notice, in this account, there's a lot of detail He said, this is my name. This is my dad. I worked here. I was in Susa. There's a lot of detail. He's not making this stuff up. He's 900 miles away. His his body is in Susa in the citadel, in the palace, but his heart and his soul is with the people in Jerusalem, 900 miles away. Now notice um, what happens next. He asked them and they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. 
Nehemiah is anxious for news and he says, are we a people again? And his brother said, well, well yeah, we're, we're a nation, but not a very good one. All the walls are broken down. All the gates are burned. We're very vulnerable to attack. And, and you have to understand, walls and, and gates were very important back then. When Babylon, were, when they were in, in control, um, they built the city of Babylon with walls 320 feet high and 87 feet thick. One historian I read about said that you could, you could um, actually drive four chariots abreast on the top of this wall. And I got to thinking, I don't know if they had extreme sports back then, but that would be an extreme sport. Chariot races 320 feet up in the air, that'd be awesome. And so when, whenever I eat something that doesn't agree with me and it keeps me up late at night, my mind starts doing weird things. Here's one of the weird things my mind did. So I got to thinking, chariot races 320 feet up in the air and these chariots, and so where's the announcer? I don't know what kind of PA he would have, but he's going, and oh, here they come around. The back stretch are going down the back corner. And I don't know who's listening or whatever, but, but I think this is what I think happened. This is, this in my mind, this happened this week in my mind. <clears throat> so I see one that is uh, kind of green. It kind of looks like Wisconsin cheese. And, uh, it looks like that old guy, Aaron Rodgers, is driving that one and he's making a move and here he comes. Oh, but the young guy in the silver and blue, that Dak Prescott, he's not about to let that happen. And so he just, he knocks him off the side. Oh, there he goes. He gone. He ain't making the Super Bowl. I had a lot of pepperoni, and uh, that was for Cody. Cody's wearing that god-awful shirt. In the house of the Lord. We will, we will have special prayer for you, Cody, later. Um, anyway, that's how it works. So walls were a big deal. That's where that, that whole point is walls were a big deal. Jerusalem had none. They were very vulnerable to attack. And honestly, this is actually... This, the, the condition of the walls, it's the condition of them spiritually as well. The walls were broken down. Spiritually, they were broken down. Look how Nehemiah responds. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. This was not like what so many of us do. I do it too. When we watch TV and we see a flood somewhere, or we see something that happens and we're like, oh man, that's horrible. And we go on about our life. I don't know if you paid any attention to when the hurricane, uh, hurricane Matthew hit Haiti. That's very personal to me because we had been on the top of a mountain that was, that was almost devastated by the, the hurricane. And, and Pastor Jude, one of the neatest men I've ever met was the, he was the pastor of the church where we stayed. And, and for days I kept typing and trying to figure out if he was okay. They don't have any communication there anyway where he lives. And so I'm having to go through Almondo. He's, he's on the other side of the mountains and eventually they find out, yes, he's okay. The church is okay. And luckily they said, because uh, this is what they told me that because of the work that we did last year, his house was not destroyed. We helped fortify the inside of the house. So I was grateful for that. It's very personal to me when stuff happens to Haiti because my heart is there. God has called me to be there. I understand how Nehemiah felt. When I saw that, that um, the shooting happened at the Hollywood International Airport in Fort Lauderdale, we fly through that airport when we go to Haiti. And I went, oh, dear God, there's only four terminals and they're so close together. You don't have, there is a bus that goes around. You don't have to. You can go out and walk. They're so close. And I saw the people running. It was very personal. I was praying, dear God, protect them. And then I thought, dear God, protect us. Crazy people are everywhere. It's very, very personal. I understand why Nehemiah sat down and wept. Look what happens next. His heart was broken because he was sensitive to the things of God. And, and he could have said, he could have said this. He could have said, you know, Sucks to be those people in Jerusalem. Someone should help them. You know, what, you know what you're saying when you say someone should help them? You're saying someone else should help them. 
That could have been Nehemiah because he was in the palace. He was in the citadel. When he was in Babylon, he had 320 foot high walls. Woo, I'm protected. Somebody, someone else should go help them. But that wasn't Nehemiah because he was sensitive towards God. When your heart is sensitive towards God, you will be sensitive towards other people. Look what happens next. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. This wasn't a flash in the pan emotion. This situation gripped his heart. And this is one way you can know if, if a leading is from the Lord or not. If it burdens your heart until you have to do something about it, it's from God. That's why we started this church. We could not do nothing. God burdened us years ago, 14 years ago. See, God was about to use Nehemiah to do something about this situation in Jerusalem. But first God had to do something in Nehemiah. And, and that's on your listening guide. Before God can use you to do something great, he has to do a work in you. You are not prepared where you are right now to do something for God. God has to come inside, cleanse you, and then he can use you to do something great. God's sitting in heaven and he's looking around for the needs. And he sees the need. And then he's waiting for a person to see that need. When a human heart is broken over that need, God does God-sized things to meet that need through humans. All throughout scripture, that's how he works. So I just want to tell you, if in in 2017, if what you're trying to accomplish can be done in your power, that leading is not from God. God's not interested in doing your project. God's interested in doing his project. If you're studying, experiencing God, you're going to learn all about that. Even if you're not in a small group and you want to take that book, be sure you get enough for your group. There's a few extra. If you want to take that and do a study on your own, I would encourage you to do that because it will show you how to hear God's voice. Look what happens next. Nehemiah. 1 verse 5. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. A covenant is a commitment on steroids. God said, you do this, I will bless you. You don't do this, I will scatter you. That's what had happened. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. This was not a one-time deal. For your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins the Israelites. Now, a lot of people would do this. A lot of people say, man, I confess the sins those, those Americans have done. I confess the sins those Haitians have done. I confess the sins those people at New Life Community Church have done and leave it there. But that's not what Nehemiah did. Look what he says. I confess the sins that the Israelites, including myself and my family, my father's family, me and dad are guilty too. We've done it. Look what he says. We've committed against you. We have acted wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. He's saying, we deserve everything. You told us this was going to happen. Repeatedly you warned us and we still disobeyed you. We deserve this. Look at the next part. He's about to quote God to God. And I think that's cool. When God, when you quote God to God, that means you know the word. It means you, you have understood and you've listened. And I think God is pleased when you do that. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying... If you're faithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them. Sin scatters God's people. Obedience and humility causes God to gather them back. Even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Then he asked for uh, the one request here. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. This man is the guy who stopped the rebuilding of the temple and rebuilding of Jerusalem just a few years before. And then Nehemiah prays for four months before he ever goes before this man. That's a big deal. 
that this man is the one who wrote a, a law and said, you cannot, you cannot rebuild. And then Nehemiah is about to go ask him if they can go and rebuild. Um, he prayed for four months. My question to you is, when is the last time you prayed four minutes for something? Four months before he made this request. When we pray like Nehemiah, then our, our perspective shifts to God's perspective and we see things the way he sees them. And, and we see and believe that what God says is true is true. Here's what God says is still true today. He says that, that the enslaved can still be set free. The broken can still be mended. The dirty can still be made clean. What is wrong can still be made right. God has not lost any of his power. The church has lost power because we're not obedient to God. When Jesus walked the earth, he said, he said, if you know the truth, the truth will make you free. The, the truth is a, is a capital T because it's a person. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is a person. When you know Jesus, you follow Jesus. All the power that God has is available to help you get over, to get out from under whatever it is that has you bound. Now, Nehemiah has it made. He lives in the palace of the most powerful man on the planet. But he knows he's about to go before him. He's about to ask him for a favor. Hey, uh, Mr. King, I need some time off. Well, how much time do you need? I don't know. He has, eventually, he's gone 12 years. He didn't say that. I need 12 years off. He didn't say that at first, but he said, I need some time off. And I want you to think about the crazy contrast for, for Nehemiah. He's living a life of luxury, and he's about to request from his king, can I go live for a time in a third world country that has nothing? And the king's going to go, why would you do that? You've got it made here. He was, he was in the palace. Why would you do that? And Nehemiah is going to say, because God has stirred my heart and doing nothing is not an option. Now, in those days, you did not ask a favor of the king. The last king of Judah before they're destroyed was Zedekiah. And he was actually a puppet king that one of the, the king of Babylon had put in, in charge. When he rebelled and didn't do what the king of Babylon said, the king of Babylon goes, drags him out of Jerusalem, gouges out his eyes, and makes him live as a slave the rest of the days of his life. You don't jack with the king. If the king says, hey, um, jump, you say, yes, your majesty, how high? If the king says, I need a cup of coffee, you say, you want that, you want that black or do you want that with cream and sugar? But you do not go and ask the king for a favor because you're risking your freedom at least or you may be even risking your life. But Nehemiah's heart was broken and doing nothing was not an option. Look what he says. At the end, this seems like a throwaway line. We're going to come back to it in a minute. He says, I was the cupbearer to the king. He was in a place of prominence because the king had to trust him. He had to be a man of integrity. He's the one that sipped the cups to make sure there was no poison in them before the king drank them. So the king trusted him. We'll come back to that in a second. The key to making your 2017 great is not asking, what should I do about me? It's asking a different question. What breaks your heart? Nehemiah heard about what was going on in Jerusalem. It broke his heart to the point he could not do nothing. How about that for a double negative? He couldn't sit there and do nothing. He had to do something about it. When you look at your world, I want you to ask yourself, what is it that breaks your heart? What is it that bothers you so much that you might not even want to think about it because you think there's no way I can make an impact? And really, here's, here's, here's the second part of the question. What needs to be done around me? Not what do I need to do about me. What needs to be done around me? It's others focused. You want 2017 to be great? You make a difference in someone's world or, or you make a difference in the world. That's how you become great. What needs to be done around me? Um, the people you admire the most are not the ones who maintain their ideal weight. 
right? I mean, yeah, that's awesome. You probably hate the people who maintain their ideal weight um, or jealous of them or something. The people that you admire the most are not the ones who, who got out of debt. Now, don't you dare say, Doug said we don't have to lose weight. You should lose weight. You should get out of debt. But those goals are not big enough to give your life to. You understand where I'm coming from? Those are much too, those are temporary things. Yes, get out of debt. Yes, we're, we're offering Financial Peace University. Get out of debt and, and get your weight under control. That's fine. But there are bigger things. Those things do not cause Jesus to remove his nail-scarred hands from his robe and go, man, that's great. You know what causes Jesus to applaud? When you make a difference in the world or in someone's world. Everyone has the potential to change somebody's world. Everyone. And see, what, what Janie and I say, I heard this from a pastor years ago, but what, and what I've even taught here is do for one what you wish you could do for all. Right now we have three compassion kids. Hannah has one, so we've got four compassion children. We, we wish we could do more, but that's what we can do right now. Do for one what you wish you could do for all. You can do something. It's like the story, and I heard it years ago, but, but this boy is walking down the beach, and there are starfish everywhere, thousands, thousands, thousands of starfish. This old man is walking along, and he sees that every once in a while this boy will stop, and he'll throw his starfish as far as he can back into the ocean. And the old man said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm throwing starfish into the ocean. He said, well, you can't possibly make a difference. There's so many out here, you're not going to make a difference. The little boy looked at him, picked up a starfish, threw it in the ocean. He said, I made a difference for that one. You can make a difference for somebody. Doing nothing is not an option. Let me give you a little, little truth about your life. If you don't attempt to make someone else's life better in 2017, here's what you're going to do. You're going to sit around and criticize. You're going to start blaming things on other people. And, and here's the bottom line. People who blame things do not change things. Well, well, somebody should do something about that. The president, either the one going out or the one coming in, some, one, some president, Congress, my pastor, my mom, teachers, somebody should do something. What you're saying is someone else should do something. I'm not going to do jack. Blame is not a strategy for changing things. Blame is how we avoid changing things. What if instead of blaming, you took all the energy that you would pour into blaming and criticizing and you started doing something for someone else? That's how you make 2017 better. And see, anybody can do this. Even a non-Christian can, can make someone's world better. But if you're a follower of Christ, you don't have an option. Follower of Christ means I'm trying to do what Jesus did. Jesus made a difference in people's lives. So you can't actively follow Jesus and not make someone's life better. You can't do that. It's impossible. We have football Sunday coming up. It's real, real hard. Hey, you find somebody that's crazy about football. Hey, we got this thing that they're going to be football players talking. They're even going to, when we figure out who the Super Bowl teams are, they will actually go to them and they'll film some new stuff. That's not even filmed yet. Some stuff's already filmed, some's not. And so you'll have an opportunity to do that. Take them out to eat afterwards. How hard is that? We've got Financial Peace University. We've got love and respect. We've got um, experiencing God. You can go to Haiti this year. You want to make a difference in someone's world? Go and hold a kid for a week. And, and one of the pastors asked me, in fact, he's in the United States right now. We worked at Mariani for years. Pastor Valco is in the United States in, in New York City, I think is where he is right now. He asked me one time, he said, why do you think the kids like you? 
and talking about our group because our group has connected and we went there for five years. And, and I said, I said, well, it's because we take time to love them. We spend time showing them they're valuable. And it's so funny. I don't know if this was exactly, if it was a mess up in translation or whatever, but he goes, I accept your answer. <laughs> I'm like, well, good. Cause I don't have another one. Uh, that's the best I got. Um, but, but he had asked other teams that because in their, in their society. So the parents, many of them both have to work for a buck a day or, or, you know, maybe $2 a day. They have to work. And so they just turn their children loose on the mountainside. So a bunch of crazy white people from East Texas show up. It is the coolest thing ever. And you hold those babies and they, they run alongside the bus as we're leaving. Begging us to stay, reaching up one last glimpse. Some of them jumping up in the windows. One last touch, one last hug. You ever go, it'll, it'll rock your world. You'll never be the same. You can do something. You have to do something. There's men's Bible study, women's Bible study. We've got all kinds of stuff. You can invite somebody. You can do something. Because here's, here's the bottom line. Devotion to God is measured by your devotion to other people. You see, Jesus taught that people have inherent value, not ascribed value. Inherent value means you're valuable because you're born, not because someone tells you you're valuable. And the Bible says that in the midst of the Roman, the New Testament was written in the midst of the Roman um, government, Romans dominating the world. And here's what the New Testament says. There is not Roman or slave. That's all there was. There's no boss or employee. That's all there was. There's not men and women. There's not black and white. There's not wealthy and poor. What, what the Bible is saying is in the kingdom that matters, the kingdom, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. In that kingdom, there's no hierarchy. There's no, there's no division except this. There's a king and there's people worshiping. This is the kingdom of God, the kingdom that matters. And see, when, when, when we're at the foot of the cross and I'm bowing down and worshiping Jesus, I don't go, hey, Chandler, bow lower, buddy. You're not bowing good enough. See, when I'm worshiping Jesus, I'm not concerned with your spiritual condition as much as I am. I'm unworthy. And I find it amazing that the king of kings would use someone like me. To bring somebody in the kingdom. That shouldn't happen. There should not be a kingdom where I'm qualified to help someone. Because I know me, I know my heart. There's evil in me sometimes. And God says, I love you. And if you'll get over yourself and get your eyes on me, I'll use you to do something that's better than just getting in shape. I'll use you to bring somebody into my kingdom and that lasts forever. Oh, I love being part of that kingdom. Jesus, Jesus loved people, rich people, poor people. He loved he loved centurions, Romans. He loved prostitutes. He loved tax collectors. Why? Because he created them. The Bible says in Genesis that we're all created in the image of God. You have value because you're created in the image of God, not because someone says you, that you're valuable. And the way we treat others shows everyone 
how close or how far we are from God. If I treat you poorly, you can bet a million bucks that I have not been close to the Lord. But if I treat you with value, you can bet that same million dollars that I've spent time with Jesus. And it's true for you too. The way you treat me, I know whether you've been with Jesus. When Nehemiah began to pray about going to rebuild a wall, he had no idea what was going on. He was going to go build a wall. See, about 70 years before that, God moved Zerubbabel, that's a fun name, Zerubbabel to go build the foundation of the temple. 15 years before Nehemiah, he sent Ezra to start teaching people about God, teaching people the law, and then he sent Nehemiah to build the wall. So you start with temple, you start with God's word, and then then you have a wall. And, And here's what God was doing. God was using them 444 years before the last Jewish prophet, priest, and king was going to walk through those gates that they rebuilt, walk through those walls that they rebuilt, walk to the temple that they rebuilt, and stand there and say, I am the Messiah. They had no idea that 400 years later, Jesus Christ was going to walk where they had built. And you have no idea who or what hangs in the balance of you doing something to make someone's world better. When he said, I was cupbearer to the king, seems like a throwaway line. What he was saying was, I used what I had where I was to make someone's world better. See, he, he, he was trusted by the king, but this king had also said, you can't, nobody can go back to Jerusalem. He prays for four months, God moves the king's heart. Stuff we need to do. So what I'm telling you is, there is something that's bothering you right now. There's something in your world. And maybe God put that there because he wants you to do something about it. Doing nothing is not an option. Do you bow your heads? Father, we want 2017 to be extraordinary. And it's not going to be if we ask, what should I do about me? But if we start asking, what should be done around me? If we start asking God, what did you... What did you put in my heart that's being broken right now? Because it's not right in this world. If we start asking that, God, you're going to use us in a mighty way to bring glory to your name. And that's why we exist. God changes. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.